Well, I'm just curious, who participated in some running this past weekend? Raise your hand. That's wonderful. We, we really had a pretty good representation uh, from our church family. And, and so maybe you've seen some of these pictures uh, I pulled uh, from uh, our local newspaper uh, pertaining to the race that uh, took place yesterday. And I like this next picture that's coming up. It's probably my favorite one. There he is. Come on, get going, slowpoke. That's what he said. So anyway, there's Abe. I, I love this next picture, this, uh, the one after Abe. Uh, and uh, wow, a lot of, lot of determination there uh, to go the distance. And then here's this next one. It's beautiful. Um, so the shirts say, the uh, runner in the middle uh, says blind runner. And then so she had a, a guide runner. That's uh, the runner to the right. And then to the left, it says, water girl. And so, anyway, but what a, what a great encouragement a picture like that is because it says that, you know, you really can't do a marathon by yourself. You need people uh, around you and uh, encouraging you to finish and to finish strong. Um, so uh, yesterday was a great opportunity for that in our community. Uh, and I want to tell you about another team that has participated in a marathon. Maybe you know about this father-son team, Team Hoyt. Uh, Ricky Hoyt, Rick Hoyt, his father, Richard, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, uh, Dick Hoyt. He's retired now from the Air Force. Uh, They participated, they weren't in yesterday's race, but they participated in their 30th Boston Marathon uh, just this year. And Um, uh, Rick was born in 1962, uh, diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Uh, He is a um, quadriplegic, and he has such limited muscular use of even his tongue that the only way he can communicate is through a keyboard. And uh, so their racing adventures began when Rick was 15. So Rick's 52 now. But when he was 15 years of age, he came home from school and told his mom and dad, um, there is a student at my school who was paralyzed in an accident, and they're going to have a uh, 5K race to raise money for him at 3.1 miles. And uh, dad, I, I, I want us to be in that race. And at the time, uh, uh, Dick Hoyt was in his late 30s. He was horribly out of shape, but his son made the ask, and so he said, okay, I will um, run in it, and I'll push you. I'll make a modified wheelchair, and that's, that's how we'll do it. So they entered the race, and um, uh, they placed second to last, okay? But they finished, And uh, Dick Hoyt says that when they crossed the finish line, he said, the biggest smile flashed across Ricky's face, biggest smile you've ever seen in your life. And then Rick typed this out on the keyboard, and it changed their destiny. This was a message that he gave his dad. This is what he said. He said, Dad, I felt like I wasn't handicapped. Those were his exact words. I felt like I wasn't handicapped. 
And that sentence changed the trajectory of their lives. Over the next 30 years, um, uh, over 30 years, they have participated in over 1,000 racing events, uh, 247 triathlons, uh, almost 100 half marathons, and when you include the 30 um, marathons at Boston, a total of 70 marathons. And so um, this was uh, the, at the finish line of this year's uh, Boston Marathon, and there's a um, statue that they've made uh, that, that is placed at the Boston Marathon start, Hopkinton, uh, and uh, in commemoration of just this wonderful, wonderful father-son team. And um, when you talk to dad about this entire experience, he's the one who says, my son has encouraged me. I'm the one who's been encouraged because if it weren't for Rick, I wouldn't be out there. And I just feel like I'm giving him my arms and I'm giving him my legs so that he can go out there and he can compete like everybody else. What a picture of encouragement. And what a portrait of the gospel. Let's go back to that picture. You see that picture? That church family is the gospel. Frail body, empowered and strengthened by a loving, strong father. There it is. We are the frail bodies. And God, our heavenly father, has encouraged us and empowered us and given us his strength. And that's why we can gather here as a church community. That's why we can passionately pursue Christ. That's encouragement. And that leads me to where I want us to go here um, between uh, now and really Father's Day as we consider this new series over Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, The Power of Encouragement. Now, I want you to think about what happens when encouragement happens. You can just think about the word itself, encouragement. You cut that up a little bit, and what happens? You give courage. You put courage into the life of someone else. That's simple, but let's go even deeper because the word courage uh, comes from the French and even earlier Latin, heart. So what happens when we give someone encouragement? We give them heart. We give them heart to persevere, to endure, to finish strong. But let's even go deeper than that. Because in the New Testament, there is a word. uh, The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language. And in the first century, the word for encouragement to come alongside another and speak into their life. So you see you're coming alongside and you're calling and you're speaking and you're encouraging and you're giving heart to go the distance. That's what's going on and that is, that's involved in the power and practice of encouragement. And 1 Thessalonians is dominated by the power of encouragement. Paul wrote two letters that we have to this congregation, 
And 1 Thessalonians is just all about encouragement. Now, my question is, why would a congregation need so much about encouragement? Well, the answer to that question is found when we consider how this church got started. And so that's what I want us to talk about for a little bit this morning before we actually get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's talk about how the gospel came to the city of Thessalonica. Now, first of all, where in the world is Thessalonica? Well, there we go. There's Greece. At the top of the screen, uh, about 12 o'clock, if you just go down a little bit, you'll see the phrase Thessaloniki or Thessalonica. Um, Thessalonica, by the time Paul got to Thessalonica, the city was 400 years old. Now, we Americans don't know what to do with that because we're such a young nation and we talk about, you know, something that happened a long time ago as 100 years ago. no. This was an ancient city that was started uh, around the year 350 B.C. Uh, It was named after the daughter of Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon uh, was the father of a, a girl that was born the day he won a decisive battle, the Battle of Crocus Field. And his army consisted of residents of the Grecian uh, territory of uh, Thess... Uh, wait a minute. Thessaly. Thank you. I feel like that father in my big fat Greek wedding who's getting all of these Greek terms and concludes with, so there. So the residents of Thessaly constituted the army of Philip of Macedon. They won a great victory. Greek for victory is Nike, Nike, tennis shoes, Nike, tennis shoes. Huh? You get it? So Thessala, Nike, the victory of the, the Thessalians. And Philip named a daughter, Thessalonica. And that was the founding of this city uh, that was, became the mother of Macedon. And it was a harbor town, so it had access to the Aegean Sea. Uh, And it was a thriving urban center. By the time Paul got there, it was about 100,000 people, which for an ancient city would be a huge metropolis. Well, when Rome came and took over the Greek empire with their empire, they did something uh, that absolutely transformed the city. They built a road through Thessalonica called, it was an interstate, the Ignatian Way. Take a look at this map here, and maybe you can see it up at the top. There's a red ribbon there, and that is a 700-mile road from Istanbul all the way over to the uh, Adriatic Sea, and that was the Ignatian Way. It was a major interstate for military travel, for commerce. In fact, uh, it's still in existence. You can still see it today. It's 2,200 years old. There's a part of the Ignatian Way, and there's another slide, and then there's yet another slide. 
So Paul would have taken this road as he traveled to the city of Thessalonica, a city that was loyal to the Roman Empire when Rome came and took over, and a city then that was allowed to govern itself. It was called a free city. So they, they weren't uh, hindered in any way or hassled in any way by the Roman government. They could just governed themselves, provided they were loyal, and provided they kept the peace. Remember that for a little bit later. So the Apostle Paul comes into the city of Thessalonica. He had just come from Philippi. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17. In fact, I've taken the liberty to include Acts 17, 1 through 9 on your outlines. There's just a few verses about Paul's encounter with uh, Thessalonica. Paul did two things whenever he entered a city, a new area. First of all, he got connected to the synagogue. He began worshiping in community with his Hebrew brothers and sisters. The second thing he did was he got a job. He went to work. Paul could support himself. Hebrew rabbis were required to master a trade. They were of the artisan class so that they could support themselves. Paul's trade was he was a leather worker or a tent maker made of skins. And so if a resident wanted a special shade or an awning for their home, someone like Paul would make it. And so with Paul's uh, work ethic, with his work product, and with his work attitude, Paul would associate himself with like a leather workers guild, kind of a quasi-union, Paul would then begin uh, producing a product for the market. And so you see, Paul's sharing of Christ took place out there before it took place in here in a religious gathering. That's really good for us to remember, isn't it? Our work ethic, our work attitude, our industry, our work product, those kinds of things are credibility builders as we go about sharing Christ. And that's exactly what Paul did. During the week, Work ethic, work product, work attitude, winsome personality. And then on the Sabbath, he would worship with his Hebrew brothers and sisters. And he was there long enough that then they would say, oh, you're a rabbi. Why don't you come and teach? Paul said, I'd be delighted to. And he got up and he made reference. He had mastery of the Hebrew Bible. So he began his messages typically with brothers and sisters, God and the prophets and Moses told of the coming of one greater than Moses, a deliverer, an anointed one, a Messiah who would come and bring God's kingdom to his people. And he would defeat death by overcoming death. And he would continue to talk about the prophecies of the coming of this anointed one. And then Paul would say, there was a man His name was Jesus, a man accredited by signs and wonders and miraculous deeds. He spoke as no one has ever spoken. He taught as no one has ever taught. He looked so much like a man. He acted so much like God. He brought the kingdom of God to his people, and he was then a victim of injustice 
by wicked and vile rabble who put him to death unjustly on the cross. But God vindicated him by raising him to life. And we are witnesses of this. Jesus who is king and Lord over all. And when you add Paul's work ethic and his work product and his work spirit and his winsome personality and his mastery of the Bible and his personal experience in witnessing Jesus resurrected, my goodness, it was a power. How did you come to Christ? Wasn't it through a credible witness? Wasn't it through someone that you saw something different about their lives? And what makes you so different? And they told you, and here you are. And that gospel message went out in the city of Thessalonica. Acts 17 tells us that over three Sabbath days, the apostle Paul shared Jesus. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 4, there's a wonderful response. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So this idea that Christianity was just a peasant religion, well, my goodness, this verse Simply says otherwise, doesn't it? Christianity cut across all social classes uh, and all races. This newly formed Christian community that came was filled with both Hebrews and Greeks, with those who were wealthy, those who were not as wealthy. The gospel connected with all of them. They were persuaded. But not all of them were persuaded because in verse 5, we learn that some of the Jews were jealous, jealous of Paul's message, jealous of Paul's influence, jealous of their losing sway, jealous of losing. And Luke says they took some wicked men of the rabble and they formed a mob and they turned the city into an uproar. They attacked one of the new believers, a believer by the name of Jason. The church was evidently meeting in his home. And they were trying to find Paul and Silas. And, and, and they finally dragged Jason. They dragged the brothers out. They accused them of, 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 of acting against Caesar by proclaiming another king, this King Jesus. And remember, they were a free city. And the Thessalonian government officials, they quaked when they considered that there was insurrection and treason against their Caesar by this other king. And they made Jason post a bond. A hunk of money had to get forked over to guarantee peace. And Jason paid the money. And then Jason said to Paul and the team, listen, we're sold out for Christ, but we need to be shrewd uh, and we need to be innocent. So we need, and your lives are in danger. We're going to get you out of here. So that night, they sent Paul and the missionary team away and they left. Paul and the team went down to Berea, which is about 40 miles from Thessalonica, where he goes right back to the synagogue and starts preaching again. Then... The rabble followed them to Berea and ran Paul out of Berea. So Paul says, well, I'm going to Athens. So he takes a ship. 
And he goes down to Athens. He says before he leaves, Timothy, I want you to go back up to Thessalonica. I don't know if Silas went with him or not. But I want you to go back up to Thessalonica, check in on them, encourage them, love on them, uh, and just make sure they're well and, and, and staying strong in the faith. And then you meet me back down in southern Greece. And so Paul goes south to Athens and then later goes down to Corinth and Timothy goes up to Thessalonica and then, uh, and then Timothy and Silas then take another ship and they meet Paul back down in Corinth. Are you still with me? Okay, good. When they get to Corinth, that's when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. Okay? So this church had been formed for maybe, it only been there for about a year. What do you say to new believers who learn very early how much their faith in Christ will cost them? What do you say? Now let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You'll find that on page 800, or excuse me, 986 of your church Bible. Paul, Silvanus, who's Silvanus? That's another name for Silas, okay? You know, Randall Boltinghouse, Randy Boltinghouse. You can call me Randy, you can call me Randall. If you're my mother, you just call me kid. So, all right? Silvanus, Silas. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. You hear what Paul's saying? What you say to new believers who find out early on that their faith in Christ is going to cost them, you give them encouragement. And Paul encourages these believers by reminding them what God has done for them. He encourages them by reminding them what God has done for them. Gospel-driven encouragement, Christ-centered encouragement happens when we give heart 
to our brothers and sisters in Christ by coming alongside of them and saying to them, if God is for you, who can be against you? That's encouragement. And that's what Paul, every verse in this chapter just just emotes encouragement. Paul says, we're so grateful to God for his amazing work in your lives. I mean, people could look at their lives and they, they said, what has happened to you? How do, you, how, do you, how do we account for the dramatic life change that has happened to you? That's why in verse 3, Paul speaks of their work of faith, their labor of love, and this steadfast, this stubborn, patient hope that they have in Jesus. That's why in verse 4, Paul says, look, we know that God has chosen you. Oh, brothers, beloved of God, we know he's chosen you. You have not come to faith by accident. And if you're here at Windsor Road this Sunday, it is not by accident. It is by God's intention. God has intentionally placed us in this part of the world, and he's intentionally placed you to be a beacon of light, to illuminate the world around. And how does Paul know this? Because verse 5, the gospel has come in a powerful way. It wasn't just fancy rhetoric. It wasn't just nifty preaching. There was the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, Christianity is not the presentation of an idea. Christianity is the proclamation of a power. God in Christ has entered this world and he has done what no one can do for us and and for our behalf. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and Christianity is the proclamation of that power. And Paul says in verse 6, so you saw the life of Christ in our lives and you just took it from there. You imitated Jesus himself. Even when you were afflicted, you possessed the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that's why in verse 7, Paul says you became a model You became a regional example in Macedonia and Achaia. You you showed others what it looks like when Jesus reigns on the throne of your hearts. Paul is in Corinth when he wrote this in verse 8. But evidently, word about the Thessalonian church has even reached Corinth. My goodness. They've talked about change Real life change. And here's what they've said, verses 9 and 10. They've said how you have turned from many gods to one God. From a lifeless God to the living God. They've said how you've turned from false gods to the true God. Oh, and now you live in the hopeful expectation that the best is yet to come that there will be a day when the king himself, Jesus Christ, whom God roused from the dead, verse 10, oh, he will come and he will remake the heavens and the earth into the new heavens and the new earth when he remakes our bodies. This is our destiny. Amen. Oh, Paul encourages and he's encouraged by the transformed lives of this newly formed church. 
these believers who clearly shows what our lives look like when Christ permanently rules the throne of our hearts. You see, the best kind of encouragement that we can give is not the kind of encouragement that says you can do it or add a boy or add a girl. The very best kind of encouragement that we can give is the kind of encouragement that Paul gives here when he says, look what God has done. Look what God has done. If God is for us, who can be against us? Look at what he's done to you and through you and with you. Isn't he good? That, that kind of gospel encouragement we need. And do you know why? you know why? I'll say it in one word. Fear. Fear. Fear of being rejected. Fear of being seen as less than. Fear of being taken advantage of. Fear of what will happen when we die. Fear of being hated. Fear of being wrong. What if this is wrong? What if, everything, what if we've made a mistake? We, it's, a, it's a legitimate fear that people have. It's, it's an honest fear, rather. So we might as well just name it the fear of, and, or the fear of not, or not, what if we're wrong? What if we're right and we're not able to go the distance? So we might as well name those fears, fears that have a way of immobilizing us or paralyzing us or keeping our relationships shallow. And so Paul addresses these fears and what we see is 1 Thessalonians. And so you can simply divide 1 Thessalonians into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3, and then chapters 4 and 5. Here's the summary of chapters 1 through 3. Here it is. Church, Jesus is for real. We are for real. Your conversion is for real. You're not crazy. That, that's, that's it. That's 1 Thessalonians 1 through 3. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, Paul just simply answers some of their specific questions like how do we live holy lives in an unholy city well that's that's chapter 4 verses 1 through 12 uh, question number 2 what's going to happen when we die oh well that's verse Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to chapter 5 verse uh, 11 question 3 how do we get along as a church family well, that's the rest of the book, 12 through 28 in 1 Thessalonians 5. There it is. There it is. Encouragement. Encouragement. Um, we'll address the how do you live holy lives in an unholy city, and we'll address the what's going to happen when we die later on in this series but I do want to close with this last question. How do we get along? I, I can answer that right here. I can answer that with the big idea. Here's the lesson for today. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.11. This is it. Here's how we get along. Encourage one another. and Build one another up just as you are doing. Just as you are doing. So the implication is you're doing this. Now keep doing this. Encourage one another. Come alongside. Speak gospel 
encouragement into the hearts of your brothers and sisters. Oh, yesterday's marathon was such a picture of encouragement because you can't do that race by yourself. You can't. We need people around us speaking truth, giving us heart, building one another up. And listen, listen, everyone in this church family can be an encourager. Everyone Everyone, everyone, yeah, but wait, I'm hurting. No, you are never hurt. You are never hurt too much to be an encourager. You're not. Listen, look up here. If Rick Hoyt, with cerebral palsy and uh, being a quadriplegic, if he can encourage his dad, you can be an encourager. If he can do it, you can do it. Everyone in this church family needs to be an encourager. Everyone needs to speak and write words which will help others be stronger in Christ, which will give others Christ's heart in him, in the gospel. I mean, it's there all over this chapter. It's in verse 1 to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are in Christ gives us a certain future. You see, we appreciate someone when we think about what they've done in the past, but we encourage someone when we look ahead to the future and give hope. There is a finish line. There is a destiny. And that destiny we read about in verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians speaks to our destiny. The coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies forever. And so encouragement in Christ is what we say to help others be stronger in Christ even when life is hard. So then, my question is, who needs your encouragement today? Who needs, who needs to be built up by you today? Who is living in fear who needs heart. Listen, when you're in the middle of fear, you're going to run somewhere. You are. When the reality of this broken world blows your house down, you're going to run somewhere for comfort and peace and encouragement. Now, some people run to entertainment to numb their fear. Other people run to substance abuse to turn off their fear. Others still run to food or or sex to fight fear with some sort of pleasure. Or they run to a busy calendar so that they can just forget their fear. Others still run to themselves. They say, I can do this marathon by myself. I've got my own water bottle. I don't need any water at the stations. Oh, really? See, these other, these, these are short-term fixes. They do not last for long. There's only one place to run where true encouragement, real rest, and lasting strength can be found, and that is in Christ. Christ needs to be your encouragement, your refuge, your strength. He is the refuge of refuges. So you take him, you take that encouragement, and you consume it, and then you share it. I like what John Maxwell, a former pastor and a author, once said. People go farther than they thought they could when someone else thinks they can. Here's the gospel news. 
In Christ, God thinks you can. In Christ, God believes in you. In Christ, God loves you. God's love for us gives us the reason to encourage others. God's love in us gives us the ability to encourage others. And God's love through us gives us the way to encourage others. So then, church family, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. For he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen.